We think of inventions that really kind of shaped our world or changed our society. Most of us would say the computer or maybe even the smartphone. And when we think of the pioneers of this technology, most of us are going to think of Steve Jobs or uh, maybe Bill Gates. Some of us might go a little uh, lesser known to Tim Cook, who's the current CEO of Apple. And uh, some of you may go to a Gordon Moore, who was one of the founders of Intel that helped with the first Intel processor, which is the processor that runs most of the computers in the world today. And, uh, and so these men really did kind of uh, change our society quite a bit. Everything from how we order food to how we get directions to how we communicate with each other, all in this little device that we hold in the palm of our hand, but at the same time has more computing power than the first computer that sent men to the moon. And it's kind of amazing when you think about all that this little thing can do compared to all that it can do. And the reason we think of those men of Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, uh, Gordon Moore is because they're kind of our contemporaries. They're, they're somewhat within our lifetime. And if not within our lifetime, at least we've heard of them. We, we've kind of heard stories about them. And we sometimes forget that what they did was really piggyback off of someone else, that their inventions maybe not have been as much popular, may not have been impossible at all if it hadn't been for some inventions from other people. And so the smartphone, the computer, and really all the electronics that we know and use today really should be given credit to these three men, John Bardeen, Walter Brayton, and William Shockley. And, and these men are the ones who invented the transistor. And without the transistor, none of the technology, none of the smartphones, none of the computers that you have now would be nearly as practical or useful as they are. You'd have to have a computer the size of this room um, and still not be able to play much besides Pong um, on your, your computer screen, right? And so we kind of forget that these men who were kind of past are, are extremely important. And the reason I bring these men up is not so much to point you to them, but sometimes the idea that we tend to think of, of the most important things as what is contemporary to us without thinking that there's things that happened before this. There's things that happened in the past that maybe we need to draw our attention to. And so in Hebrews chapter 7, which is where we're going to be this morning, the writer introduces us or really reintroduces us to this kind of shadowy historical figure named Melchizedek. And Melchizedek uh, is kind of like these three scientists. His name does appear in the history book, but it doesn't get much credit. He doesn't get talked about very much. In fact, outside of the book of Hebrews, he's only talked about two other places in Scripture. One in the book of Genesis and the other in the book of Psalms, of Psalm 110. And so um, when folks think about the priest, they think not necessarily of Melchizedek. They think of their current priest. They think of the current high priest. They may think of Aaron, who was the first high priest, but very few of them, if any of them, ever thought of Melchizedek, which honestly is the first priest that's ever mentioned in the Bible. And so I want to dive in this morning to Hebrews chapter 7. We've been working through the book of Hebrews and talking about the superiority of Christ, and he really dives in to the superiority of the priesthood of Christ, how it is superior to any other priesthood that there is. And so I want you to have your text with me this morning, Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to look at the first ten verses, and we're going to see what the writer has to say about this mysterious Melchizedek guy. And so Hebrews chapter 7, verse 1 says this, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, king of the Most High God, who met Abraham and blessed him, and he returned, excuse me, as he returned from defeating the kings, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. Then also, king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, 
remaining a priest forever. Verse 4, Now consider how great this man was. Even Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the plunder to him. The sons of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a command according to the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brothers, though they have also descended from Abraham. But one without this lineage collects tenths from Abraham and blesses the one who has the promise. Verse 7, without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the, in the one case, men who will die receive tenths. But in the other case, Scripture testifies that he lives. And in a sense, Levi himself, who received tenths, has paid tenths through Abraham. For he was still within his, with his ancestor, or excuse me, within his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for today. God, we thank you that we can be and be your welcomed in your house, whether we are here physically in this place or whether we are here spiritually gathered online this morning. God, your house is not a building. Your house is the, the people of God. And so we thank you, God, that you give us the opportunity in the invitation to be drawn in and to come to your house. And so, God, I pray this morning that as we are here in the quietness of this moment, the stillness of this moment, God, I pray that you are speaking loud and clear. God, for some of us, there needs to be a meeting. There needs to be an encounter with you this morning, God. For some of us, we, we've had that encounter for the first time. And for some of us, God, we just need to be reminded of how great that encounter was. And God, we just need to be reminded of the response that we should give because of that encounter with you. And so, God, I pray this morning that you will speak to us. God, I pray that you will use your word and you will speak to our hearts. And God, I pray this morning that we are ready to hear your word. And so, God, I pray that we are students sitting at your feet, ready to hear your word. God, ready to be encouraged, ready to be disciplined, ready to be corrected. God, whatever it needs, whatever we need, God, so that you have the authority to do it here now and in this place, Father. And so, God, I pray that you speak. God, I pray with all of our heart that we listen. And God, I pray that we respond in a way that you call us to, Father. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This past week, I ran across a study from the University of Jerusalem, uh, and it was kind of an interesting study, one of those that kind of just caught my attention. And, uh, and the researchers really wanted to determine um, if a person's name that they were given at birth had any impact on their physical features later, right? Meaning that uh, they wanted to determine if when a person was given a name, um, it, they said that the, when a person was given a name, it's often our first social tag. And it has very little to do with the physical appearance at birth, right? And, and, but does that change over time, right? So think about it. Most of you had your children named before you ever saw your children, except maybe on a little screen that they look like a little green or a little gray peanut anyway, right? You couldn't really tell anything about them, what they look like. Things have changed. I know you get all these cool pictures and you actually see them now, but uh, most of us named our kids without actually seeing our kids. And so we named our kid based on family. We named our kid based on all kinds of stuff, but we didn't base it on the physical appearance. And so what this group of researchers in the University of Jerusalem wanted to find out is once that name is established... Are they going to live in and, and become that name, um, or, or are they not? Or is it that they're going to have some kind of this, uh, is, is their name going to shape their physical appearance and their behavior and really their identity? Or was Shakespeare right all the time that a name is really just nothing but a name? And so the team had this theory that each name 
has association and characteristics, right? And behaviors and looks and such that the meaning, and they're all shared kind of within a society. So what the meaning is that every Michael that is out there in our society has a common look to us, right? That we have common characteristics, that we all kind of, uh, kind of have common behaviors, that every Josh has a common look, every April has a common look and common characteristics and kind of uh, common behaviors. And, and, and so every Jeremy or every Brand or everybody, everybody has these, these common features across the, the world. Right? If you're named that, you kind of have these common things. And so to test this theory, what they did was they conducted eight different studies in two different countries because they want to spread it out. And here's how the study kind of worked. They showed a person a picture, right? just a picture of a person's face. Right? And then they gave them a list of five names. One of the names was correct, and the other four obviously were incorrect. And so they said, here's the list, here's a picture, and here's a list of names. We want you to see, from this list of names, can you pick which name belongs to this face? Not knowing anything about the person, not knowing anything about who they are, where they came from, just pick the name that matches that face. Right? And oddly enough, what they found was that, that significantly, uh, a significant chance or a significant possibility that people actually did pick the right name to go with the right face. And they did it at a much higher rate than you would expect. Right? So by random chance, you would think one out of, tw- one out of five chance, 20% you should be able to do it. But they, people were able to pick this out at a much higher rate than 20%. And then when they did it by a computer, a computer even did it by a massive scale even more than that. And so what the researchers concluded was the name that we were given at birth, and this is their quote, is kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy that once a baby is named, the child will develop into an adult who looks and acts the part. All right? Now, here's why I'm telling you that, because I'm going to be honest with you. If you were to name your child Melchizedek, I have no idea what your child is going to look like. Okay, I'm just going to go ahead and tell you that. So anybody's pregnant, you might consider naming your child, not pointing any fingers or anything. But if you're here, just know that Melchizedek is probably a good name for you, not necessarily based on what he's going to look like, but based on the identity that we have in this passage. If you name your child Melchizedek, there's a pretty good chance he's going to turn out to be a pretty good guy because if they all share commonalities, then we know a little bit of information about him here in this passage, and it tells us some good things about him. Like I already told you, there's only two other passages in the whole Bible besides the book of Hebrews that mention Melchizedek. One of them is in Genesis chapter 14, and the other is in Psalm 110. And so what the writer of Hebrews does is he addresses both of those and he works off of both of those passages. And so in verses 1 through 10, which is where we're at this morning, he really addresses the Genesis 14 situation. And then next week, when we get to it, verses 11 through 22, he addresses the Psalm 110 passage, right? Why is that significant? And so today we're going to be kind of focused on this Genesis 14 passage, and next week we'll be in the Psalm 110 passage. But really his focus on both of those is showed that the priesthood of Christ is really connected to the priesthood of Melchizedek and his actions and his commitment to a priest. And so we start off verse 7, kind of reintroducing this guy named Melchizedek and give us a glimpse of his identity. And some of us are saying, in this room, you're like, listen, I've studied the Bible. I know the Bible. This whole Melchizedek thing, I have no clue who you're talking about. And that is completely fine because the majority of people would have no idea. So I want you to go ahead and look with me in verse 1. And we're going to see some, to start with, where do we get some of these? Who is this guy and why is he important? All right, so look with me in verse 1. It says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, 
who met Abraham and blessed him as he returned from defeating the king. So right off the bat, in this very first passage or verse, we learn three things about Melchizedek. One, we learn that he is the king of Salem, which later becomes the city of Jerusalem. That will be more important next week. The second thing we learn is that he is the priest of the Most High God. Now, this is interesting for two reasons. One, I've already mentioned, this is the very first time the word priest is used in the Bible at all. And so Genesis 1, all the way through 13, there is no such thing as a priest, at least not recorded in Scripture. And so when we get to Genesis 14, and the very first person that is mentioned in Scripture having the title of priest is Melchizedek. And he's not just a priest to some pagan territorial god. He is the priest to the Most High God, meaning that he's the priest to the one and only God, the, the Almighty God, the one that is above and beyond everything else. This is the same God that Abraham is following. This is the same God that Abraham has devoted his life to, which leads us to the third thing that we learn about him in verse 1, is that he has this encounter, this interaction with Abraham. All right? And we're going to learn the significance of that encounter here in just a moment. And really, we're going to see the significance of priest and king a little later. Actually, next week, we'll get to the, the connection between priest and king. Uh, so don't forget those ideas. Those are important. But if we move on to verse 2, we find out a little more of his identity. You see, in verse 2, this mysterious Melchizedek, it says that, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. All right? We're going to come back to that in a moment. That's going to be really important for us in just a moment, right? But let's continue this idea of identity. And so he goes on, he says, First, his name means king of righteousness. And then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. And this is why if you were, if the researchers are right, that if, if names are self-fulfilling prophecies, then Melchizedek is a really, really good choice. One, because I would just love it if you named your kid Melchizedek. Um, but two, if it is, then here is his identity. He is the king of of righteousness, right? This is what his name means, which he is, he is righteous. He is morally just in his actions. He strictly follows the religious and the moral laws that are connected, not just with any God, but with the most high God, the one and true God, right? So he's the king of righteousness, but he's also the king of peace, right? Meaning that he owns these, that he rules over these two things. He possesses these two things. He, he possesses righteousness, and he possesses peace. And when you possess something, you are the only one that has the power to give those things to someone else, right? I can't give a a Jeep that belongs to Adam to Josh. I can't do it. Now, I can give Josh an old beat-up Ford F-150 because I own that. I possess that, right? But I can't give something that doesn't belong to me. And so what he's showing us in this passage is that, that Melchizedek owns these things. He possesses these things. And this is where he connects it with Christ because the prophet Isaiah points out hundreds of years later in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7, this passage that we are often familiar with, mainly because of Christmas, but in Isaiah chapter six or chapter 9, verse 6, it says, For the child will be born to us, a son will be given, and the government will be on his shoulders. His name will be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the last one, the Prince of Peace. Okay? And then I want you to pick up verse 7. He says, The dominion will be vast, and his prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Right? So you see what he's doing? There is a priest and a king, Melchizedek, who is the king of righteousness 
and the king of peace. He owns them and he possesses them. He can give them as he wants to freely. And then a prophecy pointing to Christ hundreds of years later says there's this kid coming and he's going to be the prince of peace and he's also going to rule with righteousness. And Jesus himself demonstrates this same idea in John chapter 14 of being able to possess peace. In John 14 verse 27, he's talking to his disciples and he tells them this, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you, and I do not give as, you, as the world gives. Your heart must not be troubled or feel for... You see, He has peace, and He can give peace because He's the ruler of peace. He is the prince of peace, just as Scripture says. And if we look at Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it tells us that he has the same authority with righteousness. He owns it, he possesses it, and he can give it to whoever he wants to. And so in chapter, or, or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 12, or 21, Paul writes this. He said, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. You see, He was righteous, but He took on our sins so that He could give righteousness to us, so He could pass it on to us. And this is where Christ mirrors Melchizedek, in that He is the King of righteousness, and He is King of peace. This is His identity. This is that He owns these things, He possesses these things, and He alone has the power to disperse these things at His will. That He alone has the ability and the authority... To give righteousness and to give peace. It is, the, is essential to who he is and it's essential to who we are and what we believe about him. And here's the reason why. Because without his righteousness and without his peace, the gospel is not good news. Without his righteousness being able to transfer to us, without his peace being transferred to us, then the message of Christ would be the same message of every other religion in the world. You want to get to heaven? Work for it. You want to get to heaven? You do it to deserve it. But that's not the message of Christ. The message of Christ is that I have righteousness and I have peace and I will freely give them to you. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. I own it. I possess it. All you have to do is accept what I am giving to you. This gift of grace and this gift that is given out of love, it's mine and I give it to you. You don't have to work for it and you don't have to earn it. That's what makes the gospel good news. That's what makes the gospel essential and what makes it so great. But the writer of Hebrews goes on in verse 3. gives us a little more of this identity of the mysterious Melchizedek. And he gives us this information uh, that is, is similar to Melchizedek and Jesus. In verse 3 he describes in this way. He says, Without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, remaining a priest forever. Right? Now this... This verse honestly needs a little explanation because this is one of those passages of Scripture that kind of gets lost in translation. Right? When this passage was written, it was not written in English. It was written in Greek. And so the Greek is very clear. And when it got translated into English, they kind of got lost in the meaning. Because what it sounds like, at least when I read that passage, is that this guy has no daddy. He has no mommy. We don't know when he was born. And we don't know where, what happened to him. kind of sounds like a Superman episode where he just kind of fell out of heaven somewhere. Right? That's the way I read that passage. But that's not the Greek idea of that passage. Right? The Greek idea of that passage is not that he doesn't have father and mother. Or he doesn't have a birthday. It's simply that we don't know his father 
and his mother. We don't know his birthday. We don't know his genealogy. Meaning that it's not recorded in Scripture. You can search Scripture from one end to the other, and you're never going to see anywhere in Scripture where it says, this guy is the father of Melchizedek. This lady is the mother of Melchizedek. Which tells us, not only does the Bible not describe it or, or, or have it written down, but nowhere in history, in any history chronicles, do we have this information. Which tells me one thing. Whoever his parents are, are not of notable status. They, they were not headliners. They were not people who you automatically knew. They were not people that everybody were drawn to. Melchizedek doesn't come from this long line of powerful kings. They're like, oh yeah, well of course he's going to be king because his father was king and his grandfather. We don't have that. And if somebody did come from a long line of historical kings, we would have that information. Think of all the pharaohs that happened in Egypt, these powerful kings. We know who the daddy of every one of them are. We know who their mother is. We know when their birthdays were. We know all of that stuff, but not this guy. We don't have any of that information about this guy. And so here's the connection to Christ. Because while we do know the father and mother of Christ, while we have an idea of his birthday, what he's telling us is that the mother and father of Christ have the same status that the mother and father of Melchizedek have. They're nobodies. They're not kings. They're not queens. They're not anybody society will look like and be like, oh yeah, that kid, that kid's got it made. Look who daddy is. I mean, that kid was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. There's no question that kid's going to be this person. Because look who daddy and mommy are. Look at the special day they were born. None of that. And so what we need to learn from this passage is very clearly that God is not limited to work in the ways that you and I think and the ways that society tells us that he has to work. God doesn't need a celebrity to make something great. God doesn't need a celebrity to be your pastor so that you hear the word of God. God doesn't need Chris Tomlin to come up here and lead worship for you to be in a place of worship. He can use common, ordinary people like Josh and just make it work. He can use common, ordinary people like Michael and the message doesn't change. Why? Because it doesn't depend on the messenger at all. It is completely dependent on what God wants to do and freely because He is God Most High, because He is God Almighty... He can, with all authority, work in however way he wants to and however way he chooses to, whether society says that's the way it should work or it's not. It's not our place to judge the way that God works or who God can work in and who can God work through. It is completely up to God and God himself. See, but the writer of Hebrews, he makes it clear that Melchizedek's identity points us to Christ, but then he goes on to show us that something else points us to Christ as well. See, there's this... this what he does points us to Christ. And there's a couple things that Melchizedek does that points us to Christ and the superiority of Christ in this passage. And the first thing he does is that he blesses. Right? And that's kind of an odd way to say he gives a blessing, if you will. And this is where we, we kind of fit in the, the direct reference to Genesis 14. And so uh, we won't look at Genesis 14. You can mark in your Bible. You can go back and look at this story up later. But I'll just kind of give you the, the shortcut version of it. Right? In Genesis chapter 14... Lot and, and his uncle, Lot is Abraham's nephew, they've separated. Lot decided there were too many people in too small space, and he needed more room. And so he picked the better fields for him and his sheep. Right? The better fields just happened to be near Sodom and Gomorrah, and so some of you know that story, how that turns out. Uh, but before that, he chooses that area, and he goes that way. Right? Well, then Sodom's king gets with four other kings. So there's a total of five kings, and they decide to go wage war against this other set of four kings. So there's five kings who go wage war against four kings. Right? Well, those four kings are pretty powerful. 
And they beat all five of that first set of kings. And when they beat them, they take their stuff, right? It's not like you just beat somebody and you're like, all right, now go back to your home. Like, when you beat somebody, you take their stuff and you take it with you. And so some of the stuff included Lot, included Abraham's nephew, right? You take people and you take stuff and anything that could be used, you take it all. And so these set of four kings overtook these set of five kings and they took all their stuff with them and they took Lot too. So now Lot is now held kind of prisoner and all these other people are kind of held prisoner by these four kings. Well, Abraham, he doesn't like that very much. And so Abraham does what family does and he's like, oh, I'm going to get him back. And so Abraham rallies his troops, and I want you to hear this. His troops consist of 318 men. That's it. That's his troops. That's his army. 318 men. Now, I don't know if these were like trained Marines or if they were recon Marines or if they were Navy SEALs or Army Airborne Rangers. I don't know, but they must have been some kind of like commando force because these 318 men, they go and they defeat the armies of four kings who had just defeated the armies of five kings. That's pretty impressive. Some of you are like, okay, well, that's 318 men who would honestly fit within this room, go and defeat four independent armies all by themselves. That's pretty awesome. And so what does Abraham do? He gathers up the stuff, and he grabs his nephew lot, and he says, come on, boy, I told you this was going to be a problem. And they start to head back home. Now, this is the Michael Rake version. That's not in the Bible, okay? That's the Michael Rake's version, just let you And he says, come on, let's go back home. And on his way back home, he's met by this weird guy named Melchizedek. And Melchizedek comes out to meet him with one purpose. And the purpose is to bless him. Right? And so that's the story that we have in Genesis 14. And that's the meeting that we read about here in verse 1 of Hebrews chapter 7. Remember verse 1, it says, The king of Salem, king of the most high priest, or most high, excuse me, priest of the most high God, who met Abraham and blessed him as he returned from defeating the kings. And so Melchizedek's purpose, the only purpose we have of going out to meet Abraham is to bless him. And it's really this acknowledgement of, of who he is and the victory that he has. It's really kind of this reminder, hey, really, the reason you were victorious is not because you got 318 commando troops. It's the reason you were victorious is because there's this God who has protected you and this God who offered his aid to you. That this small group of 318 men fought against these four complete armies. And this God is the reason that you defeated them. Don't ever forget that, Abraham. You didn't reach this point because you earned it or you deserved it. You were able to do this because God was with you. And so there's this recognition that God is working with and through Abraham. And God has this great plan for Abraham. Now, for every Jew, that's not a question. They already knew that Abraham was the blessed one. They already knew that Abraham had received this direct blessing from God. Back in Genesis chapter 12, two chapters before Melchizedek, God blessed Abraham and He gave him this promise that not only was he going to be blessed, but he was going to be the conduit of blessing to everybody else. And so in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, we will look at that. And God is speaking to Abraham and He tells him this, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who treat you with contempt. Get this, and all the people of the earth will be the blessing through you. And so in the Jewish mindset, uh, Abraham was already blessed. It was his job to be the blessing to everybody else. Abraham is the superior. If you thought of anybody that had all the marks of blessings of God, it was Abraham. Right? He was the superior one. And so kind of the question is not what is going on with the blessing of God, but really the question is what difference does it make if Melchizedek gives him this blessing? He's already been blessed by God. He's already rich. He's already now the most powerful man in the whole region. 
What does Melchizedek have to offer to him? And so the writer of Hebrews kind of puts this and explains the importance of this in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 7. And he kind of spins this whole thing around. He says, without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the superior. So this meeting between Abraham, who in every Jewish mind is the superior to everything. In this meeting between Abraham and Melchizedek, Abraham is the inferior and Melchizedek is the superior. Abraham is, is important but he's not the most important. And what he's telling these readers and what he's telling us is simply that. Abraham's important. Don't forget him. But he's not everything. Right? Abraham might be able to, to beat four armies with 318 men. But he's not the most important. Abraham may be wealthy. But he's not the most important. Abraham may be the conduit of blessings. But he's not the most important blessings. You see, the one with the most important, the one who's superior, the one who really you should be looking for, comes after the pattern of Melchizedek. He is the superior one. He is the one who can bless you far beyond you ever thought possible. You see, the more stuff you have, you tend to forget where the blessings came from. The superior one is the one who blesses you with more than power, the more than wealth. He's the one who can bless you with more than authority and with more than a family. He can bless you with things that this world doesn't define as success, but God does. The superior one is the one who possesses and can bless you with righteousness and peace because he is the one who controls them and possesses them. The superior one is the one who says, yes, I, I can give you wealth, but that's not your greatest need. I can give you power, but that's not your greatest need. I can give you health unlimited, but that's not your greatest need. What I can give you instead of all those things, yeah, I can give you all those things, but what you really need, the biggest blessing I can give you is righteousness before your Creator, is to be able to stand right in front of God and to be able to stand at peace with your Creator, a righteousness and a peace that translates to our salvation. So listen to me clearly. I believe God can bless you financially. I believe that God can bless you with health. I believe that God can, can give you power and family. I can believe all that, but I believe, believe honestly his bigger blessing is the righteousness of Christ that becomes our salvation. The biggest, most superior blessing is the peace that he offers us with our Creator. And I believe the bigger blessing is the peace that he offers us with our Creator so that we can have peace with one another. The superior blessing of the King of Righteousness and the Prince of Peace, the superior blessing doesn't come from the priesthood of Levi. It comes from the priesthood of Christ, who is the king of righteousness and the prince of peace. And all these blessings and all those who believe in Christ, we've received that. We've received that righteousness. We've received that peace. All of us who have put trust and faith in Christ, sitting in this room, watching online, we've all received it. So really the question, not this morning, for some of us is not do we need to receive it. For some of us, the question really becomes, how do we respond to it? Once we've been given it, how do we respond? You see, we don't have a priest who just blesses and gives. We have a priest who also receives. Abraham defeats these four kings and he gathers up all their victory and he turns to go back home. And he's met with this weird guy named Melchizedek that now we're starting to meet or tell a little bit more. And Melchizedek blesses him. And then Abraham gives Melchizedek something in return. So we go back to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 4. And he says, now consider how great this man was. Talking about Melchizedek. 
Even Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the plunder to him. This is the start of the tithe. This is the start of the idea of you give 10% of your income back to God. And so it starts with Abraham, but it doesn't start with the Jewish law. It starts with Abraham. And i got to clarify that a tenth of this plunder is not a small amount. Remember what I told you in the story? He didn't just defeat one king. He defeated four kings who had just defeated five other kings. Really, he's got the plunder of nine kings and nine territories when he comes back. So understand, this is not a small little token that he puts in an offering plate and walks away from. This is a significant amount of of people and resources and and contributions that he's given to him. This is a significant amount. But I don't think the amount is the important part because we move on. We see that, that this is the... The amount is not the important part. What it is, is the important part is why he does it. You see, he doesn't give the 10% to gain anything. He doesn't give the 10% to get the blessing. He gives the 10% because the blessing's already been given to him. He gives it because the blessing is already his. He gives it to be thankful and to show his gratitude for what's already been done for him. Not to gain anything. Now, if we read on in verse 5, we'll see why the writer brings this point up. In verse 5, it says, The sons of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a command according to the law to collect a tenth from the people. That is, that their brothers, though they have also, or excuse me, though they have also descended from Abraham. So the Levites who have become priests, they still collect this tithe in the first century. They still collect this, this 10% in the first century. And to be honest with you, they still do that to this day. If you're an Orthodox Jew or, or you're a Jew that wants to be in good standing, um, you still pay your temple tax. And that's what they call it. You pay your temple tax. Regardless of where you are at in the world, whether you're in Jerusalem, whether you're in Israel, whether you're living here in America as a Jew, if you want the blessings of God and you want to avoid the punishment of God, then you pay your temple tax every year. Now, it's not a temple tax, and it's, they do this because it is a command in their law. They are legally obligated to do this. Now, when I say legally obligated, understand, to my knowledge, there's not a Jewish IRS that's going to audit you. Okay? There's not a Jewish IRS that's going to come and arrest you and take your stuff. You see, they'll tell you that you're obligated to do this, but your obligation is to God, not to them. And so what they'll tell you is, hey, listen, if you don't pay this, then we won't give you the blessings that God has for you. If you don't pay this, then you're going to have to deal with the punishment of God. And so I want you to see that that is a very different motivation for giving than the reason Abraham gives. You see, for these folks, for the Jews that are giving to the Levitical system, the Jews that even today, the reason they give is to either gain blessing or to avoid punishment. Because they're fulfilling an obligation to a legal status. They're fulfilling a law that this is something they have to do. It is required for them. But I want you to understand, this is where the difference between these two offerings come in. It is not the amount. The 10% is not the important part of this passage. It is the motivation behind the 10%. You see, Abraham is living in a time that there's not a legal requirement to give anything. There's not a legal requirement to give 5%, 2%, 10%, anything. He has no obligation legally, biblically, nothing to give anything to Melchizedek. There's no law that says he has to give a dime to him. The only reason that Abraham gives anything to Melchizedek is because of what Melchizedek gave to Abraham to start with. 
And so his motivation is not obligation, it is gratitude. His motivation is not to give because he has to, it's because he wants to. His motivation is because he recognizes how good God has been to him. He recognizes how much God has given him and how much God has done for him. And he recognizes that there's no obligation to do this, but he does it out of thanksgiving because of what God has done for him. Now, I've got one more point in the outline. It's simply that all of this predates Levi. And, and, and that's, you can read that in verses 9 and 10. that uh, they, This predates Levi. It predates all the law. And Levi even gave this 10%. And we can talk about that. We can have that discussion at another time. But I really want to just kind of end here. Because this, to me, is where this passage gets really, really personal. For us sitting here and for us that are watching online. This is where, for, for me, this passage really becomes so personal. Because the question that we have to deal with in this passage is why are we here? Why did we come to worship this morning? And why, whether we're online or whether we're here in person, why are you giving this time to God? Some of you are, are, have already given money and some of you are going to give money. And, and I don't, that makes no difference to me. But the question whether you've given here or in person or online is simply Why? Some of you have contributed to the pregnancy center through the love offering that we're taking up. And the question, again, is why? Over the next week, some of you are going to be in Bible study, and some of you are going to have quiet times, and some of you are going to do some great things and really good things for other people. You're going to show the love of Christ to other people, and some of you are even going to teach Bible study. Some of you are going to teach and lead a group of youth, and some of you are going to teach and lead a group of children. And the same question to all of it, why? Really, the question is this. Are you doing what you are doing for God? Out of obligation or out of gratitude? Are you doing it to gain something or to avoid punishment? Or are you doing it because you have been given so much and you just want to do something in return? You see, the superior priest is the one that you give to not because you have to, but because you want to. Not because you're obligated to, but because you're so thankful for what He's done for you. Not because you're trying to earn a blessing or avoid a judgment, but because your heart is overflowing with gratitude for the blessings you've already been given. See, we're going to end our service here in just a moment. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to end our service with singing one last song. And really it comes back to that question. I'm really praying that we're going to respond to God the way that Abraham responded to Melchizedek. That we're going to stand and we're going to sing this song. Not out of obligation, not because we have to, but because we want to. We're going to stand and we're going to sing this song. Not because words are on a screen in front of us, but because these are the words of the joy of our heart. That our heart rejoices for the salvation that we've been freely offered. And the best thing we can do is give back to Him in thanksgiving. For the blessings of righteousness and the blessings of peace. The heart that overflows because of what's been done for us. Because He who was righteous took on sin for us and so that we could become the righteousness of God. Because when we look at the cross, we see the debt that we couldn't pay and we would never be able to earn. And it was all taken care of by the King of Righteousness and the Prince of Peace. So the question really comes, why are you here this morning? Why are you worshiping? Why are you giving? Are you doing it because you feel the obligation Or simply because this is the only way I know to respond to a God who did so much for me. To a God who would go to those extremes and give up everything for me. And I don't do it to earn anything. I don't do it to get anything, to avoid anything. 
It is simply because this is the only way I know to show any type of gratitude to a God that loved me enough to send His Son to die a terrible death in my place so that I could live with Him forever, so that His righteousness could be mine and I could have peace with Him for eternity. Let's pray together.